Good morning. Uh, last week, uh, or last Sunday, Charles preached uh, and did an excellent job talking about uh, the man that Jesus healed. And uh, it's a great message. Uh, I just want to recap some of the weeks before that uh, as we've been going through this series on joy uh, together. And uh, in those previous weeks, we've talked about uh, just the purpose of, of joy and how God has called us to be a joyous people. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons that he's done that. Uh, one of the biggest reasons is that Jesus uses the joy that he's placed in our hearts to show other people how wonderful and, and beautiful a relationship with him is and how ultimately there's nothing else that will ever satisfy our hearts as much as walking with Jesus will. Um, so we've looked at a couple different passages and in our most recent message, uh, we looked at Psalm 51 and how even when we sin and we fail God, He still loves us. And we don't have to be completely stripped of our joy because we can look back on what Jesus has done for us. And just like David, who murdered and committed adultery and then tried to cover up his sin, we see that God still loves him and he's still able to rejoice at the end of it because he knows that no matter what he does, God still cares for him and holds him and has him. Uh, So today, I wanted to wrap up that short series as we look at what it means to find joy in God in our day-to-day lives. Uh, So that's what we've titled the sermon this morning is finding joy in the day-to-day. So what I mean by that is like every day that we're here, we have a purpose, right? Hopefully we understand that our purpose is to walk with Jesus, to realize that He is who we are created for and that all things are for Him and under Him, which means that every part of our lives should be influenced by who Jesus is and what he's done for us, okay? And we call that being gospel-centered. We have a lot of different terminology, but that's what we mean by that when you hear us say, we want to be gospel-centered. What we mean is we want Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us to be so real to us that it changes every part of our lives, the way we're thinking, the way we're speaking, and the way we're acting. And when that happens, it changes the way we parent, the way we have relationships with people, the way we speak to people, the way we go to work, the things we do at work, the things we do at home. It changes everything. That's what Jesus does. He changes everything. Uh, So this morning, as we look at that, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 20. Sorry, 13 through 20. Uh, And we're going to bounce around a little bit. Uh, So if you're taking notes, I would just encourage you to write these passages down because it will help you so you can look back at them later because we're going to have to move and move and move just in order to get through all of it. Uh, But there's a couple questions uh, that I would like to answer as uh, we just go through this this passage. Uh, the The first one is this, why should we be concerned with following God's commands in Scripture joyfully? So what purpose is there for that? Um, The second, what is the purpose of following His commands? And then the third, um, what happens if if we don't follow Him joyfully? Uh, Or what if we like our way better? So those are some things that I would would like to answer as we move through uh, this message today and this passage of Scripture. So if you'll turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You see that this is the beginning 
of the Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus has gone up to speak to a large group of people with him, uh, which consists of a variety of people, right, who are following him. And Jesus' message spans from chapter 5 to chapter 7. And the point of his message is to show believers how to demonstrate their lives, how to demonstrate the character of God and his kingdom in their daily lives. And one could call these their Christian duties, right? Uh, because earlier on in the series, you said, what does it mean to be a Christian? We have all these duties, right? We've been called, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, to do all these things that are completely countercultural, right? So he tells us, hey, love your enemy as you love yourself. He says, turn the other cheek, right? He makes all these profound statements that go against our natural desires of our heart. So there are commands like love your neighbor, put others before yourselves, meaning cater to other people's needs before we cater to our own and worry about ourselves, be selfless, love our spouse as Jesus loves the church, which is in Ephesians 5, how to raise our children, let only things that are good for lifting up come out of our mouths, she says in Ephesians 4.29. Share the gospel and make disciples, Matthew 28.19. And then along with all the commands that we'll see on the Sermon on the Mount, like not having hate in our hearts, reconciling our problems with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only saying no to lust, but saying no to lust in our minds and our hearts, Loving those who would harm us, being generous to the wicked and those who would hurt us. Loving our enemies, giving to those in need, fasting, trusting in God and not being anxious, finding our greatest treasure in God instead of earthly things. If you can do all of those things, that's impressive. To me, I feel like that list is crushing. That list is impossible for us to do in our own power, right? You know, the Pharisees try to do all these things in their own power and they fail And what's amazing about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus says your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's something that I want to dive into today because I feel like this list of the things that God has commanded us to do in Scripture can cause us to see Christianity as a list of rules. And it can cause us to think I have to do this and I have to do that. And then we're constantly fighting for God's approval or we're constantly crushed because we can't we feel like we can't get God's approval and then we end up turning away from God to all these other things so that's what I want to look at today Uh, so in those first three verses of uh, chapter 5 well verses 13 through 16 sorry not the first three verses it says this You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus begins by comparing Christians to the salt of the earth. So Jesus compares those who would follow him to salt, not just because salt was pure, not just because salt adds flavor, not just because salt stings when you rub it in a wound, all right? 
but because salt was used as a, preser- as a preservative in this time. Salt was used to preserve meat. They didn't have refrigerators, right? So salt is used to preserve things and to keep them from falling apart. And it's interesting that Jesus tells us to be salt because by telling us to be salt, what Jesus is really telling us is to be used by him to do his kingdom work. And this helps us answer that first question, which is an important question. Why should we be concerned with following God's commands in Scripture joyfully? It's because God has called us to be the salt of the earth. God has called us to help preserve and save others by his power. And our joy in him and the work that we do joyously that makes an impact on the world around us. It's for his glory and it makes an impact on all these people that see us. So when we see someone suffering and falling apart emotionally, we're called to be salt. We're called to go to them. We're called to bear their burden. When we see people that we love arguing with one another, we're called to be salt. We're called to go in. We're called to be a mediator. We're called to bring peace to them instead of steering clear of them and letting them feud and destroy their relationships with one another. When we see people in need, who are in need of food, who are in need of love, who are in need of kindness and compassion, who don't have a place to belong, who don't fit into a social group, we're salt. We give those people a place to belong. Uh, There's a man who once said that the reason that he came to Christianity was because He went into the church and he saw all of these different people, young people, old people, people of different ethnicities, and they're all talking to one another and they're all getting along and they're all going out to lunch afterwards and they're all spending time together throughout the week. And why are they doing that when the world is so different and people are so different? People hate one another based off of their differences. It's because of Jesus and all of these people have a place in God's family. And he says, all these people have found a place to belong. And that's what drew him to Christ. It's because he realized that believers were different than everyone else in the world. That believers, instead of continuing to tear things apart and to tear people apart, were called to bring people together, preserve these relationships with people, give people a place to be. I feel like that's very interesting because that's just what salt does. It prevents the meat from falling apart and decaying and rotting and spoiling. And that's what we are called to do as we follow Jesus. The next thing that he says is that he compares us to light. And before we jump into that, I want to point out how the world is is dark. It's been dark and it is getting darker ever since Adam and Eve committed the first sin. And Christians here, what Jesus is pointing out, is that we are bringing something in that is attractive to everyone else. And this continues to answer that question of why is it important for us to follow God's commands in Scripture? Because we bring something in that we were created for in the very beginning, in the first place. He's saying everything that we believe, the way that we live our lives, even though people might disagree with it, these are things that people crave and that they desire even if they don't realize it at first so jesus moves into this part about light in verses 14 through 16 this is what he says he says you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father 
who is in heaven. So Jesus is very specific here. Especially in verse 16. Notice he says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's interesting that Jesus says, let your light shine. Because in John 8, verse 12, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus calls himself light in the world, in the Gospel of John. Yet during this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's account, says, you guys are the light of the world. You people who would follow me, you're the light of the world. Why is that? It's not because we're special. It's because we're meant to be a reflection of him. Jesus is the one who provides the light. He's the one who brings the change in us. So it's not something that comes from us. We're meant to show people who Jesus is in our daily lives and interactions. What's really cool about this whole Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is going to challenge the social norms of the people, right? So all through the Beatitudes and the rest of what Jesus is starting to say here is going to function as a way to challenge these people and to show them, hey, you guys are living a certain way and you think that you just need to follow these commands, but you're actually missing some things and you're not really salt and light yet, but if you, if you listen to what I'm saying, you will be. What he's saying is our character as Christians is going to affect other people for better or for worse. Whether we realize it or not, everything that we do as people who claim to believe in God actually says something about God and shows people who God is. So we're either showing them an accurate image of who God is or we're showing them an inaccurate image of who God is. So the light that Jesus is talking about, these are our good works. And Jesus doesn't want us to be confused about these good works. And he's going to explain that in the following verses, verses 17 through 20. So I want to read these verses to you. They say this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so Jesus wants them to know that he did not come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law. And that's important because, like we just talked about, Jesus is about to challenge them in the way they see the law, in the way they see religion. And then after this, he encourages his listeners. He says, keep following these commandments, and he makes it very important. He says, you'll either be the least in the kingdom of heaven or you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But I think the most important verse here is that last one in verse 20. So I want to read it again. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. Jesus' listeners would have been shocked to hear this because to them, Jesus has just told them to basically be perfect because that's how they viewed the Pharisees. The Pharisees existed 
to follow God's law and to, in a sense, try and improve upon the law and become even more holy and even more righteous, right? So to them, they see this massive river that they can never cross, right? It's impossible. This is, this is an impossible task for them because they're trying to be better than people who've devoted their entire lives to being good, to being moral. But Jesus doesn't mean that they need to do more work than the Pharisees or follow the law more closely than them. What Jesus means by being more righteous, by their righteousness exceeding the Pharisees and the scribes, is that they obey God from a changed heart. So kingdom righteousness happens from the inside out. And this is a term that I want to kind of continue to keep using. Up until this point, people have kind of operated from what I, what I like to call outside in. They're trying to be good and they're trying to do good works in order so they can be accepted by God, so that they can feel like they have value. And what happens is that it never works and it's never enough and they never really feel good enough about themselves. So they end up looking down at other people and end up saying, oh, look at me, I'm better than you. And then they start trying to get approval from man instead of God. That's what's really happening here. But what Jesus is after is the inside out. He says, I want your heart. I want you to be changed from the inside. Once you have a changed heart, your motivations will be different. When you have changed motivations, you'll begin to see how God never intended for you to see the law and to just try and be perfect in order to gain his love. Okay, so that's his point. It's really cool because I want to break this down. From the very beginning of this passage, as we see in Matthew 5, verse 3, one of the first things that he tells them here, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, these are the people who recognize that they need God's help. These are the people who recognize that they're not good enough. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's saying, here's a promise. If you realize that you're not good enough, if you realize that you need help to get there, yours is the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? He's saying it's not up to you. It's going to be up to God. God's the one who makes our righteousness possible. Jesus is the one who went to die on the cross for our sins so we could be saved. That's what he's saying. In verse six, he says, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they know it's something they can't achieve themselves. Verse eight says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I think this one is really important. The pure in heart, he's looking at that inner part of us, that motivation. He says, For those who are pure in heart, it's not those who just do good works, but it's those whose heart has been changed and whose motives are pure now. Verse 21 through 22, as we move deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, I want to read these verses to you. It says, You've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus points out it's not good enough to refrain from murder if you have hate in your heart and you have disdain for others. 
He moves on and he talks about lust. The way you think about things in your mind. Even that's sinful. It doesn't matter if you actually act on it or not. He tells us not to lust in our thoughts. He tells us not to take oaths, but to be honest, to be people of integrity for our yes to mean yes and our no to mean no. And verses 38 through 42, when he says, turn the other cheek, Jesus doesn't just say, don't retaliate. Jesus says, hey, when something is taken from you, you turn the other cheek, or when someone sues you, you give them even more. Why? So that they might experience the kindness and grace that God has given us and that he is offering to them as well. In the following verses, he says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking all of the commands that they've been following and he's taking them deeper. He's applying them even further to their hearts. So he's performing spiritual surgery and he's pointing out the difference between two kinds of hearts. The inside out heart, right? The heart that's been changed by Jesus, by God and the person who is trying to do good in all of these different ways so that they can be accepted by God or accepted by man. So when we look back at verses 14 through 16, we see two different people here. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When he says you hide it under a basket, you don't hide your light under a basket. Jesus wouldn't say this if it wasn't happening, right? I feel like this is very applicable for us. There's a variety of reasons we do this, but we tend to hide our light right? So this is the person that's afraid to live for Jesus in front of others, right? This is the person that's afraid to stand up for what they believe. This is the person that's afraid to say no when they are around that certain group of people and they face temptation. These are the people who are afraid of what others will think of them, right? This also is that group of people who think that, hey, maybe, maybe church is just for, for Sunday and I can go to small groups and I can do these things, but then when I go to work, that's work. Like I have, to make, I have to make a living when I go to work, right? There's a difference. I have to separate these things, right? And that's inaccurate. And this, this is that group of people who, who struggle, who struggle to let Jesus come into every area of their lives. Why? Because they're afraid. And there's a great illustration of this. Uh, I think by Tim Keller. And he says, uh, there was a man. There was a man who grew up in a church. And this man, he was constantly told by the church elders, you need, to be, you need to be sharing your faith. You need to be sharing your faith at home with your parents. You need to be sharing your faith at work. You need to be serving people. You need to be doing all these things. You need to be doing all these things. And if you're not doing all these things, then you won't be loved by God. You won't be accepted. You won't feel joy. You won't have any of these things. 
So the man is constantly just crushed by this desire to share his faith. And this is something that can happen to us. And since he's crushed by his desire to share his faith, he never does it because he's afraid that he'll fail, right? So then what does he do? He ends up being so anxious that he's like, well, if if God doesn't love me and if God doesn't approve of me because I can't share my faith, then I need to find someone who loves me and someone who approves of me. So he turns to his work friends and he tries to get in good with them and then he realizes, well, these guys also, they never approve of me and I'm afraid of what they'll think of me if I actually do share the gospel with them. So I can't ever share the gospel with him. So he's being torn in two directions because he doesn't feel loved by God, but he doesn't feel loved by his friends at work, right? And then one day, he goes to a different church. And he walks in. And he says, hey, where's the pastor at? And somebody takes him to the pastor. And he says, I have a question. I understand all these things that Jesus has done for me. I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. I know that Jesus loves me. But I'm just scared. I'm scared to share the gospel. I'm afraid that I will offend someone or hurt someone. But most importantly, I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I'm afraid of how people will see me. And the pastor says, that's okay. Jesus will still love you. And the man said, what do you mean? And the minister said, that's the gospel, right? That no matter what you do, Jesus still loves you. That Jesus died to pay the penalty for anything that you do wrong. Even the things that you fail to do right, he still loves you. And the man just walks out. And then a week later, another man comes to the pastor and asks him, what did you say to that guy? He's going around telling everyone about Jesus. What did you tell him? And the pastor says, I told him that he didn't have to. What happened was the man realized that God already loved him and approved of him. He didn't know that beforehand. And what Jesus is saying here in this Sermon on the Mount, is that, hey, you people, you people that are finally starting to get it, you people, like the people in verse three who are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You people who know that it's not your work, you don't have to be afraid because I'm the one who's gonna do it for you. Jesus is the one who is gonna die on the cross for them. They were already loved. They were already accepted. They didn't have to be afraid anymore. They don't have to find their approval or their acceptance from anyone else or anything else because they're already approved. So what happens, he's liberated, right? He's freed from this oppression and this desire to have to feel like he has to go share the gospel. He has to do it or he won't be loved. The next type of person that we see here is that Pharisee. Number two, we show our light to the world, but instead of pointing to God, we take the credit. And this is what we call like a works-based theology. And it lacks the joy that we're trying to talk about, right? So these are people where they have to, they have to do the work or they won't feel loved and accepted by God, or they they have to do well, or they won't feel like they're where they need to be and like they're loved and accepted by God. When we fall into this, we realize that we can't rejoice in Christ because we think that we have to be doing something worthwhile all the time. We tend to take credit for everything that God is doing instead of 
realizing that, hey, the light that we're supposed to be showing to everyone, that's from Jesus and Jesus alone, and it's for Jesus, right? As we see it in verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may do what? See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not give glory to you, but give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is something we can struggle with. So this is something we can struggle with. So why do we struggle with this and what happens? We struggle with this when we begin to fall into that that habit of prioritizing work over people, right? And we prioritize the task over the master who gave us the task. This is the person who finds joy in their ability to complete the task that God gives them instead of celebrating God for empowering them to do the task according to his will and for his beautiful purposes, like the desire to heal and save others. So we're celebrating our accomplishments instead of him. Now, how can we make sure that we live this joyous life of light in our day-to-day activities instead of falling into these two categories? And I think that a really good passage that will help us understand this uh, is in Luke uh, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. If you turn there in your Bibles, Jesus gives us a parable. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, Two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what I want to look at is this man's heart. He begins praying, right? And after that first sentence... There's nothing else about God. That first sentence is about God. God, I thank you that I am not like anyone else because of all of my works and all of the things that I'm doing. Okay, so there's a couple things to take note of here. What has this man done? He's distanced himself from everyone else, right? He's gotten away from everyone. And now he's looking down on others because of his own works and his own ability, right? He says, I'm not like these other people. Meanwhile, we have a tax collector over there beating his breast, right? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we see the two different types of people here, and we see the two different types of hearts that God is after, right? So this tax collector who's betrayed his people, he says, basically, God, I'm not worthy of you. You're too good, and I'm just a, a dirty sinner. And he says, this man is justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This Pharisee has been doing good, right? But God doesn't care about the good if our heart is not there. He says the other man is made just as if he'd never sinned. The other man is made clean. The other man is made whole. Because this man is after 
God's heart. This man is willing to let God change everything about who he is and everything about his life while the other man is worried about how he looks. Right? So this is what I want to dive into. We've got two different people here. We've got people who say, I'm not good enough to do this. God could never love me. God could never want me. God could never care for me enough. I'm not doing enough for him, so why would God ever want me? And then we've got the other person saying, I'm doing good enough. I might not be doing everything that God calls me to do, but I'm not, I'm not doing the biggest sins, right? Or I'm not doing the worst out of everyone around me, right? And it's easy to fall into one of these two places. When we fall into these places, we end up lacking joy. And in both of these situations, we're not joyous people who are salt and light to the rest of the world. We can't be. Because in both of these areas of life, or when we're in these areas of belief, we're seeing God as a boss, right? So here's what I mean by that. You have a job and you know what it's like to have that, that boss who's just always over you and he's always on you. And that boss is saying, if you mess up, that's it. You're fired, right? When you do good, you're praised. Maybe you get a bonus. So then you want to continue to do good. But when you do bad, that's it. You're gone. You're done. That's, that's the end of it. He's saying that is an inaccurate view of who God is. And if we're living our lives like that, we won't be able to point people to Jesus. We won't be salt and light in all these different areas of our lives because our view of God is wrong. He's after our hearts and he loves us. View him as a father, right? And many of you are parents and you have children. You love your kids that are the most messed up, right? You want what's good. You want what's best for your kids that continue to mess up, continue to mess up, Right? God is just like that. When we continue to mess up over and over and over again, he still loves us. When we do good, he loves us. When we fail him, he loves us, right? That's who he is. So how do we live a life of joy? How do we live a life of joy day to day, right? There's a ton of application. I mean, we could talk about application forever. But the most important thing that has to happen is that God has to capture our hearts in a way that changes us to our very core, right? I think that I have an illustration that hopefully might might help us understand that, might help us understand his heart. There's an old movie called The Fisher King. It was before I was even born. I think it's from like 91. And... uh, In this movie, you have Robin Williams, who is one of my sister's favorite all-time actors. He's, he's a great guy. And uh, he's a homeless man. You have him and you have Jeff Bridges. And Jeff Bridges is uh, one of those radio personalities. And uh, he's what you call a shock jock. So he just gets on the air and he's just kind of gets into arguments with people and gives his opinions and it's always about hot button issues, hot button topics, right? And one day he gets into this argument with this guy and this guy just is so upset and he ends up going out and killing seven people in a bar. And then Jeff Bridges' life just spirals out of control after that. He, 
he actually begins to feel remorse for the first time in his life. And uh, he runs into Robin Williams' character eventually. And Robin Williams, like I told you, is this homeless man. He finds out that Robin Williams, his wife was in that bar. And that he's in some way responsible because he led that man. He pushed him to that brink. That point where he kills his he kills Robert Williams' wife, right? Um, not to give away the whole plot of the movie, but uh, what's really, really fascinating about this movie is that there's a scene that I feel like just really illustrates uh, our relationship with God, uh, and that's because Jeff Bridges, he, he wants Robin Williams' life to get back on track because he's kind of lost it, and uh, he helps him take this girl that he likes on a date after his wife's been gone. And uh, he takes her on this date. And it kind of turns out that they're made for one another because Robin Williams' character is pretty quirky. And uh, he takes this girl on a date. And she's like, oh, I just had the most wonderful time. But I never want to see you again. And then she just takes off running. She's like, I'm getting out of here. So Robin Williams chases after her. And he says, why? Why are you running away? What are you doing? And she says, because I know how this goes. I'll invite you up for coffee. You'll stay the night. But then when we get up, you won't have time to eat breakfast with me. You probably won't have time for coffee either. We'll exchange numbers, but you'll never call. And I'll feel great the next day. But then I'll slowly begin to feel terrible and worse and worse and worse because I'll realize that you never really loved me and that you never really cared and I'll slowly turn into a speck of dust. That's what will happen to me. And Robin Williams says, I have a confession to make. I already know all about you. I know that you're just afraid. You're afraid that I'll find out who you really are. You're afraid that I'll find out how quirky you are, how bad you are. So, but I want you to know something. I know all about your life. I know you hate your job. I know when you have a good day. I know when you have a bad day. I know it's a good day because you pick up a certain novel from the store. I know when you have a bad day because you don't pick it up. I know what you have on your lunch break. And honestly, I never had the intention of coming up for coffee. He had no selfish gain. He says, but I promise that if you give me your number... I'll always call, I'll always hold you, I'll always be there, I'll always love you. And then she reaches out and she grabs his arm, and you know what she says? She says, you're real? Like, you're, you're real. And he's like, he's off and she's off, so they're really the perfect pair. But she says, you're real because she can't believe that someone would love her like that, that someone would love her like that. This is what it's like to find someone who really loves you, right? I mean, and I would argue, you'll only find someone like that who believes in Jesus. But that's a sermon for another time, right? But some of you, you really connect with this because you've been married, you found that person, right? Or you had a love like that. Or maybe you've never experienced that, but you desperately want to. 
And the whole purpose of me telling you that is to tell you that you don't have to look for that anymore. Because the reason that grabs your heart, the reason those movies like that grab your heart, is because that's what we desire more than anything else in the world. That's why we try to do good all the time, right? And that's why we're crushed when we fail to do good enough for God. That's why we're crushed when we sin. That's why. But this, this is what it's like to fall into God's arms and His reassuring promises. When you experience that, wait, God, your real moment, that's when you know you found it. That's when you know that He loves you like that. He's always there. He always cares. He doesn't want a perfect you. That's not why He's calling us to do all these things, right? He just wants you. He doesn't need you to show people you can follow the rules. That's not what he's after. It's not what he's about. He just needs you to show people that you're willing to follow him. Follow him in your relationships. Follow him in your friendships. Follow him at work. Follow him in your marriage. Follow him in your integrity by being honest. Follow him by treating people the way he's treated us. This means that when we fail, because you're going to fail, you're going to fail. It means that when you fail, just repent. Come back to God, like we talked about last week in Psalm 51. Let people know, hey, I led you astray. I want you to know I led you astray. But God still loves me, and he still loves you. And I want you to know that this is what it looks like to repent of your sin. And take your failures and use them as an opportunity to show people what it looks like to follow Jesus. And you have to be incredibly humble to do that. And you also have to be incredibly loved to do that. You have to realize how much God loves you. Because what we have to be willing to say is, I am so loved by God and I'm so cared for by God that it doesn't matter if everyone thinks that I'm crazy because I'm apologizing to them. Right? Because that's what happens. When you apologize today, I'll give you an example. I apologize to my basketball kids because I, I typically don't raise my voice unless we're in a game. And like when we played De Quincey the other night, and the kid kicks the ball out and they try to give him the ball and we're up by one. And I'm like, dude, that's our wall. I raised my voice then. But I had to apologize to my kids and they're like, what? Coach? Are you apologizing to us? I'm like, yeah, I did wrong. My goal is not for us to win games. I mean, it's nice if we do. But my goal is for you guys to become godly men. To see, like, hey, this is what it looks like. When you mess up, you fess up, right? We have all these little rhymes to help us remember what we're supposed to do. That's what we're talking about, though. I said, hey, you know, I didn't treat you guys the way Jesus has treated me when I fail, when I mess up before. You might have been talking. You might have been disrespectful to our assistant coach. But that doesn't mean we have to holler at you. That's what it's talking about. Did they look at me like I was crazy? Absolutely. But did they get it? Did they realize that there's something greater and something deeper than what they've ever known before? Absolutely. Because they know what we're about. And that's what will, what will happen at work. That's what will happen for you at work. That's what will happen for you at home. That's hopefully what will happen for you when you leave here today. Right? So I just had to tell those kids, hey, I messed up. And that's what we have to tell people, hey, I messed up. But I want you to know that that's not who Jesus is. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about God. 
That's part of what it looks like. So, as we do that now, as you realize how loved we are, the last few things I want to leave you with are just some application. As you're changed in this way, as you're changed by, by who Jesus is, as he captures your heart in these wonderful and powerful ways, right? You'll be able to do things. Like go out and be intentional. Like uh, D.L. Moody was. D.L. Moody uh, was just a great evangelist. And there's uh, Woodrow Wilson was sitting in a barbershop, barbershop one time and, he, and he's writing about the encounter that he has with him because he said, I'm sitting there and this man walks in and he's very quiet. And he comes in and he sits down. He's getting a haircut just like me. And I realize how intentional he is with his barber. He's asking the barber questions about his life. And he's joyous and he's happy. He's just taking an errand. He had to get a haircut, right? And he uses his haircut as a way just to get to know his barber and to show people the love of Jesus on a daily errand. That's all it is. He says, well, I had to get a haircut, so I may as well go live for Jesus while I'm doing that. I can get caught up, I could bring my phone, I could text someone, I could, you know, I could watch something, I could read a book while that's happening. But no, what does Moody say? He says, no, I'm going to be intentional with my barber, I'm going to talk to my barber. Barbers are good at talking, right? They always try to make conversation with you. But what's Moody do? He flips it on the barber. He says, no, you tell me about you. I want to know about you. Tell me something about yourself. Help me get to know you. He says, when D.L. Moody walked out of that room, I felt like I'd just been in a worship service. I felt like God's presence had just been there because that man cared solely about that barber, not about his haircut. He could have walked out of there with a one on every side, right? Completely bald. That's not what he was worried about. Lastly, just, just one more point of application. When this happens to us, like when we're changed like this, we're changed like this, we're able to do crazy things that just don't make sense apart from the gospel, right? Like when we go to work and you have a lot of credibility built up and someone makes a mistake and you're able to take the blame for them and people say, why would you do that? Why would you take the blame for them? There's your gospel opportunity, right? You say, well, I just... This wasn't going to hurt me. This wasn't going to end my career. I can help you out. I can take some heat off of you. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for me. He just, you know, he just took the ultimate heat off of me. The weight of sin and death. The fact that I was supposed to be separated from God forever. That I was supposed to spend eternity in hell apart from him. I'll help you keep your job. I have enough credibility built up. I don't mind if I lose face with the boss. Because I'm already loved more than I could ever know. I already have everything that I need, right? So, as I leave you with that uh, today, I just want to remind you like, this is what it means to have this type of heart change. What does it mean to find joy in the day to day things of life? It means to have our hearts captured by Jesus in this way. And if our heart's not captured by Jesus in this way that changes us like this, then we won't be able 
to go out and love people like that and to be intentional with people like that, it just won't be possible because we'll find ourselves either feeling crushed by all the things that God has commanded us to do or arrogantly looking down at everyone else saying, you're not good enough. Look at me and what I'm doing. We'll be desiring praise. We'll be desiring to take the glory from God, right? And to get it for ourselves in order to fill ourselves up. But it will never fill us up. It will never make us happy enough. And we'll realize that even as we do good things, we'll always be overbearing. We'll always be grumpy. We'll never really be happy, right? Have you realized that? When you're just trying to do good works, but your heart isn't actually in it, what do you do? You're doing good works, and then you snap at somebody that you're working with, but we're supposed to be on a mission trip. We're supposed to be on a service project. Or you come home, and your heart isn't actually where it needs to be. And maybe you were just at church. Maybe you were just doing something good. You come home and you snap at your kids or you snap at your spouse or you snap at your friend, right? So that's what I want to leave you with today. Let's pray.